The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. It's so good to see everybody here. We continue our study in Genesis, and we're picking up where we left off last week, which was Noah was in a, was in a real bind for a year, stuck on a boat with a bunch of smelly animals and his in-laws. And we talked about how that would lead anybody to trust in the Lord, right, for our only salvation. And so this week, we see he's off the boat, and he's basically building his life after the flood. So we're looking at life after the flood. And, and when we think about a real flood, a, a physical flood, like we know that many are suffering in Florida, and we're going to be looking and listening for word for how we can help. And as we learn, we will send out a word to you to help you participate, certainly be praying for those who have gone through that. We've experienced our own floods and uh, hurricanes and stuff like that in Louisiana. So we know how difficult it is to rebuild after a flood. But that's uh, not everybody can say that they've been through a physical flood. But when we see these narratives as the way that they're written with these theological truths embedded in them, we see that uh, we saw that the flood that Noah went through was the curse of sin. And in that sense, all of us have experienced the flood of God's judgment upon us for sin. We see the scriptures teaches us that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why we live in broken, the broken world that we live in. Our our minds are broken, our bodies are broken, our relationships are broken. Most importantly, our relationship with God is broken because of sin. And the picture in the scriptures is that all the world had just gotten crazy, ridiculously evil and wicked. The, the, the sin of Adam was passed down from generation to generation, and the sin was just getting worse and worse, where the life on this world was, was just terrible. And God sent a flood to cleanse the earth of such evil and such wickedness, and yet he spared Noah. And so what we see is Noah on the ark of safety, And salvation is a picture of our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we are in the ark that God has provided for us. The obedient son of God has, through his perfect obedience, provided a way of escape from the judgment of God. And when Noah was spared, what did we see in the scriptures that described why was Noah saved? Why was Noah saved? Saved from the coming wrath of God. What did it say that he did? He found favor with God. That's absolutely right. And how did it describe it? He did what? Noah walked with God. And then we said, well, what does that look like? Because it's described him as being righteous, having favor with God. He was declared righteous. Now, did that mean he was perfect in his lifestyle? Perfect and never sinned. No, Enoch walked with God and God took him. He escaped the curse of death. Did that mean that Enoch was sinless? No, his actions were not sinless, but his, the characteristic of his life, God said, he walked with me. And what did that mean? It meant he trusted God and that means he trusted in God's provision for his sin, which is the promised redeemer of Genesis 3.15. The storyline of the Bible traces that promise to the identity of, of Jesus Christ, who is God's provision for sin. The way of escape from sin and death, the curse of sin, is by faith in God's promised redeemer, Jesus Christ. 
And that's how he escaped the flood. That's how he was declared right with God. That's how he discovered the favor of God was God reconciled him through the promised Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And now what we see now is on on this text, chapter 8, verse 20 through 9, 19, we're going to look at today, we see life after the flood. And so what this is for us, this is life as believers, Life as those who have been spared the consequences of sin, who have escaped the coming judgment of sin. How do we live after that? How do we rebuild our lives? How do we build the life in Christ? And that's what we're going to see in the text today. These are foundational passages. We're still in the very beginning of your Bible. And in the very beginning, the way it's written is, is large narratives with theological themes that are picked up in the rest of your Bible. And those themes provide foundational truths to build your life upon. In fact, in this text, we see Noah looks a lot like a second Adam. The scene, the themes, the wording, is the author uses these as narrative pictures that are picked up several places in the scriptures to convey his message. And today what we see, this is a new beginning. Noah is a second Adam after the flood. Noah provides a picture of what life after the flood looks like. And so we, in these foundational passages, are going to pull out just simple but profound, two foundational truths to build your life on after the flood. Lord, would you help us this morning build our life on these two foundational truths that they would serve us as this is how you live life after the flood. As believers who have been saved from the wrath of God by faith in your promised Savior Jesus, help us to know how we live now after the flood so that we may be pleasing in your eyes. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin in chapter 8, verse 20. We're going to work through the text, pulling out these two foundational truths of how to live life after the flood. Look what he says in chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an ark to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Let me pause there for just a minute. So what is Noah doing? Noah is offering an attitude of, oh, oh, oh. Noah is offering an offering of grace, an offering of worship, an offering of appreciation. He has just been spared death. And he gets off the boat, and the first thing the scripture tells us is he worships God. He's praising God. He's offering to God what is called a whole burnt offering. Now, what is a whole burnt offering? If you go to Leviticus, uh, you see this. Uh, in the law that God gives Israel, he describes what a whole burnt offering is. And a whole burnt offering has a lot of aspects, but it comes from a heart of thanksgiving for God's gracious salvation. And it is wholly burnt, completely obliterated. And the idea is this is a, a symbol of the whole dedication of the worshiper's life to God. And so the whole burnt offering was to convey the idea that the worshiper says, I am giving you all of my life out of gratitude for your salvation of my life. And that makes sense. Coming right off the ark, we see Noah saying, thank you, God, for saving me. So if you are here today and you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, 
Paul tells us, like Noah, you should give your life as a living sacrifice, wholly devoted to God. So life after the flood, life having been spared of the judgment of sin that you and I completely deserved, the salvation that we completely did not deserve, should move us and be built upon this attitude of gratitude for salvation. That why do you serve? Why do you give? Why do you worship? Why do you sing? Why do you come to church? Because you are filled with gratitude for the grace, the gracious salvation that God has provided you through faith in Jesus Christ. That should be the single primary greatest motivator in our life for all that we do. Paul says that we should be living sacrifices to the Lord. In Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's interesting compared to a, a sacrifice is typically slaughtered and dead. But ours, because we are part of united with Christ by faith, we are resurrected, we are living sacrifices so that we are to be holy and acceptable to God and this should be our spiritual worship. Your life should be laid on the altar of God every day. Every day you say, Lord, how can I serve you? How can I pour myself out completely in devotion to you? in your raising of your kids, in your doing of your job, in the way you relate with your neighbors, in how you spend your money, how you spend your time. All of it is laid on the altar every day saying, God, you saved me. Now, I want to be wholly devoted to you. I want to live for your glory. That's what we see Noah doing. Life after the flood is a life of worshiping the God who saved you by faith in Jesus Christ. And then continuing in verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, it's a great word picture here. The the altar of God, the sacrifice of worship, holy burnt, the, the aroma is rising and the Lord smells it and it's a pleasing aroma. It's a pleasing, soothing aroma and the the word play here is, is incredible in Hebrew. The soothing word sounds like the rest or relief that we were told Noah would bring last week. Sounds just like the name Noah. So the idea here is this altering of sacrifice after the judgment of God has been satisfied is a soothing aroma to the Lord. And it says in 21... He found this pleasing. He smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That makes no sense. I I read that so many times this week going, surely I misunderstood this. Tell me if this makes logical sense. I will never curse the ground again because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What is the grounds of God's saying, I will never curse the ground again? It's showing because of their lifestyle or their sinlessness, it says the exact opposite. I will never curse again because you're always sinful. If I was going to write the logical 
if I was going to write this logically, I would say, I will never curse you again because you are no longer sinful. That's not what it says. Why does God say, I will never curse it again? Because he has been soothed. He has been pleased. He has been satisfied. Irregardless of their condition of their heart. Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation. There is no more curse for those who are in Christ. You see, this is the gospel of grace. It's not logical. Logically, we think, I clean my act up. God sees that. God says, I won't curse you. That's not the gospel. The gospel of grace is, though you continue to be sinful, I am pleased by Christ. And therefore, if you are hidden in Christ by faith, I will not curse you. You are no longer condemned. That's good news. That's the gospel of grace. And so we're building this first foundational truth about the character of God. And we see this God is a God of grace. And he he is pleased. He is soothed by his own work of sacrifice. His own work of forgiveness. His own work of redemption. And Noah who walks with him and trusts in him. And trusts in his promised redeemer is declared righteous, and as he walks with God, he is a soothing aroma to God. His life is a worship to God. And as a result, the Lord says, Neither will I ever again strike down this earth or every living creature as I have done. Verse 22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And what is he saying there? What is he doing? In response to looking and saying, man's heart is always wicked, he starts to commit himself to man's good. It makes no sense. Seeing the wickedness of man from youth, from birth, from on, he's always wicked. That's been this repeated refrain throughout the scripture narratives about the flood. And after the flood, man's wicked. He's always wicked. His heart's always wicked. His mind's continually wicked all the time. Oh, after the flood, maybe it's not wicked. No, he's wicked all the time. And what does God say? I'm in it for your good. I'm committed to preserving this earth. As long as this earth remains, I'm going to keep it in a healthy balance that is for your good. It says as long as this earth remains, that implies this earth will not always remain. The Bible tells us that the Lord will return again and that will be like this day. It will be a day of judgment where God cleanses the earth of all evil and all of his enemies. And he will recreate it with a new earth, a new heavens and a new earth. And we saw the story of the Bible as God redeeming his people and his planet, right? He is redeeming his people and his planet. And so he's doing this. He's, he's bringing about a redemption And he's saying that in the meantime, I'm going to preserve the earth. Now, why would he say that? He said, I'm going to preserve the earth, the the seasons. How does he say it? He says, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night. Because he just unleashed the balance. 
the flood came and destroyed everything. You would live in fear if you knew. We would live in fear if we thought for a second that God was not going to preserve the seasons, the, the climate. We take that for granted. We think that just happens. The Bible says, no, God is providentially governing it and keeping it in balance, keeping it for your good. And your, all of us, including me, you are, we are described as evil continually all the time. And God is saying, let me do good for you. Let me preserve the earth for you. Let me make it productive for you. Let me make it fruitful so that you can provide food and and provide protection and so you can have all these blessings in life. And so we're seeing the character of God is unbelievably gracious, unbelievably good. And sometimes we look around and we say, I don't see God's good. All I see is storms in life. All I see is debris. All I see is destruction and despair. I see the need to rebuild. I see brokenness. And, and he's saying, as long as this earth remains, you're going to see that. But I'm making all things new. Trust that I am good. I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring about a full restoration when I do. But in the meantime, know this. God is good. You see, we see in the creation account that God is this incredibly powerful, sovereign creator. And we go, wow, he's sovereign. He's powerful. That's one thing, but what, what's his character? I mean, because if he is not a good God, that is scary. That is to be one, to be, that is terrifying. And what the Bible is careful to say at these foundational beginnings of the Bible is get to know your God. He is good. He is sovereign and good. He is gracious. He is voluntarily committing himself to the good of humanity, which has done nothing but to prove themselves wicked. And God says, let me do good for you. Let me do more good for you. Let me just keep doing good for you. Even the things that the world would say, how is anything good in a flood? God is doing good. God is bringing cleansing and good. And and we need to recognize God's goodness, his gracious character. And so the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, even though his people are wicked all the time. We continue to see his goodness in chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here we see that same language. Where have you heard this language before? Where have you heard this language before? In the garden. In Genesis 1 and 2. You see how the author works. The author is intentionally linking these pictures together to create these images and this message in our mind. God is good. God is gracious. The God of creation is the God of Noah, is the God of Abraham, is the God of every character that leads up to you. He's the same God. The God that you see in the Bible is the same God today. He is good. He is gracious. And here in verse 1 and verse 7, you see it bookended by this phrase, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with glory. 
And so this is a bookend of blessings in 9.1 through 9.7. We see God blessing and blessing and blessing. And it sounds very similar to the creation account in Genesis 1 of Adam. And God blessed them. God gave them food. God gave them land. God protected them. God said, now be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with glory. They sin and death and the curse of sin spread. And God cleansed the earth. And God starts over with Noah. And he says, now let's try this again. And look at the similar items. In verse 1, we see he blesses them with mission and meaning and purpose in life. Fill the earth with my glory. That's your purpose, to fill the earth with God's glory. How do you do that? By walking with him, by trusting and obeying him. In verse 2, we see that he is being, they are being protected, just like Adam and Eve were protected. Here they are protected from the animals first. It says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. We take that for granted, don't we? When you walk out and a wild animal runs from you, say, Thank you, God for your protection. This is God providentially protecting his people from the ravaging animals. In verse 3, he provides them with food. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you meat. What? Did I just say that? But you shall not eat flesh with his blood, so don't make it too raw. But you can eat meat. I know there's a big trend getting away from meat, but I'm a firm believer in meat. And you don't want to eat meat? Give it to me. I'll eat it. We had a lot last night, and it was good. But God says, I'm providing for you food. He's providing just like we see in the garden. He's giving them protection. He's giving them a relationship with him. And he's saying, this is your purpose, and this is your meaning. Go and spread my glory to the ends of the earth. And then we see God protects them from the evil, murderous hearts of of man. In verse 5, and for you, lifeblood will be required. Here's the value of life. Lifeblood, that's a phrase that we'll see is important as we continue in the text. Lifeblood, he says, I will require a reckoning, an accounting for everything that has life. From every beast, I'll require it. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. What's that sound like? It's law of capital punishment. Here before the law was ever given, we see God in his character says, life is valuable. It will be protected. For God says that if man's blood is shed, man's blood shall be shed as punishment to refrain or to restrain further bloodshed. For God made man in his own image. And see, God is exalting everything we see in the first account, Genesis 1 and 2. We just see the same thing here. Man is made in the image of God. He's protecting them. He's caring for them. He knows what's good for them. He's blessing them. He's providing for them. And he's giving them the mission, fill the earth with my glory. This is a redo. 
And that's what we experience by salvation in Jesus Christ. It is a new life in Christ. When we baptize, it's a picture of we have been buried with Christ and we are raised to walk in the newness of life. We are born again. All these phrases, life after the flood is a new life of hope and meaning and purpose with the same God of grace who has a great plan for your life and he is all for you. He is not against you. He says if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. God's not here to curse you. He's here to bless you. He wants good for your life. Trust Him. Obey Him. He's good and gracious and glorious. He loves you. He he wants to walk with you. These are crazy, crazy ideas that we see that are just profoundly important. And then we see the goodness isn't done. We see a covenant. Look at chapter 9, verse 8 through 17. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. This is God just saying, I got more. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what I'm going to do for your kids. Here's what I'm going to do for their offspring. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit myself. I'm going to bind myself to your good. We're going to enter a covenant. It's a one-sided covenant. You don't, this isn't contingent upon you. This is just me saying, let me tell you what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to bless you. Every, verse 10, every covenant with you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. I establish my covenant with you. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So parents, world, the world stops Just watch your social media account when a rainbow hits the sky. Everybody, I saw the most beautiful rainbow today. We just sit there and enjoy the beauty of a rainbow. It's the whole world stops. And when your kids say, look at the rainbow, when you see the rainbow, what should be in your mind? It is a reminder of the universal, eternal truth. God is so good. I see storms. I see debris. I see I got to rebuild. God is so good. He has voluntarily bound his goodness for us, to us. He has committed himself to you. When you see the rainbow, tell your kids, God is committed to your good. He's gracious. He's loving. He's good. You can trust him. Obey him. He is for your good. That's the foundational truth, the first truth to write down in your your notes. God is a covenant God of grace. God is a covenant 
God of grace. In community group, your leader's going to ask you to fill in the blanks. What, did, what was the first point? What did we see from Noah? What kind of God is he? And you're going to say, God is a covenant God of grace. And he committed himself to be good to us as we are being described as evil from our youth. God is a un- unmerited favor is what grace means. Unmerited favor. He is a covenant God of grace. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are participating in God's unmerited favor. He is pouring his grace upon us. And like he said about the earth, he is saying about you as a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, I will never curse you again. Ever. And when you see the rainbow, it's a reminder. Never again will I curse you because all condemnation has been satisfied in Christ. He absorbed the wrath of God for you and for me if you are in Christ. What an incredibly glorious truth to build your life upon. Sometimes we don't see God that way. And that's because sin distorts our view. Sin distorts our attitude. We see the things and we doubt God. And that was the very essence of the problem in the garden is, did he really, can you really trust him? And yes, he can be trusted. In Genesis three fifteen, God promised to send a redeemer who would redeem his people and his planet. And we're watching as the story unfolds. Is it, is, is it uh, who are his first kids? Cain and Abel? Is it Cain? Oh, nope. It ain't Abel either because he's dead. And Cain killed him. This isn't looking good. Is it Seth? No, we have kids and we have kids. Oh, no, everybody's destroyed. It's, it's Noah. Here's the new beginning, the seed of Eve who's going to redeem the world and start over and restore everything is Noah. And then we say, maybe it's Noah. And then we keep reading in the text about Noah and and we want to see, is he the redeemer? And then we get to 9 verse 20 and it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and he lay naked in his tent. Not the Redeemer. Not the Redeemer. This is not the long-awaited Messiah. He proves that he is just like everyone else. He's just like Adam. He is a sinner, evil from his youth all the time. And yet he walked with God, he was declared righteous, and he was saved from sin and the curse of sin. Noah's just like Adam. Adam and Eve in the garden, there's a tree, they partake of the fruit, and they're naked. Sin and shame enters the world. They need covering. God graciously covers them. You see the gospel in all that? Noah. After the flood, in the garden, plants a a tree, a vine, partakes of the fruit of the vine and is naked and the shame is uncovered. He needs a covering. And then in come his three kids. Weird scene, isn't it? Have you read this? It's weird stuff. And you're like, okay, I'm going to ask Tracy, what happened? And I'm going to say, if it doesn't tell us, we don't know, but I do know what it tells us. It tells us Ham walked in and what did he do? What did he do? He walked out. 
He didn't address the, the nakedness or the shame. He ignored it. And then, uh, uh, help me out here, Japheth and Shem walk in, and what they do? They walk in backwards, and they cover the shame. That's what the author tells us. That's what we know. That's what we deal with. The author tells you what he wants you to deal with, not keep the other stuff secret so you can sit around and guess, what in the world was that? He's saying, and then there's the blessing from Noah over his kids, and it's all written in poetic language, and so that immediately loosens you up to go, okay, something's going on here. These three become, the, the text says, these three fill the earth. They are the ones that populate the earth. So these are representative heads of all the people that fill the earth. And there's two responses of all the people who fill the earth. One who does not address the shame of sin and the other does. And the one who does not address the shame of sin is cursed and is called the father of Canaan. Later, as you read the scriptures, Canaan becomes the the figurehead of all pagan godless nations. And so you have two people groups presented here in this scene of Noah's shame. The nations, the earth is filled with two types of people. Those who seek to have the shame of sin covered, and those are representative of the people of God, And those who do not address the sin, they ignore it. And they are representative of Canaan and the godless pagan nations. Which group are you in? How do you respond to sin? The text is telling us we must address the sin problem. And how do we address that problem? We lay it on the altar of Jesus Christ. We take the gift that God's given us. You see, the the idea here, I don't have time to go into all this talk about the lifeblood. The scriptures makes a big deal about that, that the innocent life must be shed for a guilty life. The lifeblood of an innocent one, God accepts as the sacrificial payment for a guilty life. And ultimately, all these little mentions of the sacrifice of a a goat or an animal or a bird, all these point to Jesus, who is the unblemished Lamb of God, who God provides as the substitutionary sacrifice, the innocent sacrifice for guilty humanity. He is the ark of salvation. He is the Noah who built God's provided means of escaping the judgment. He is the Enoch who perfectly walked with God. He is the lamb of God sacrificed for your sin and mine. And we have a choice to make. Every single one of you has a choice to make. Do you trust only in the blood of Jesus as the only hope that you will be declared righteous as the only way to escape the coming judgment of God as the only one way to be declared holy and not guilty as the only way to say that there is no condemnation left for you. The only way is to trust in Jesus. How will you respond? Are you like the godless pagan nations of Canaan? Or will you be among the people of God who say, I'm trusting only 
and Jesus to cover my sin and shame. Choose to trust Christ today, right now. Choose right now. Say, God, I'm trusting in Jesus. In your heart, just say that. I'm trusting in Jesus. Not just to begin this life of walking, but life after the flood is a continual trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus. Noah was saved, and yet he's drunken and shameful, and he's trusting in the life of Jesus as his only payment for his sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The only proper response to sin. There's no question. The question's not, am I sinning? The question is, how do I respond to sin? And it's repent and trust only in the blood of Jesus Christ as the lifeblood of the innocent God-man for your guilty life and mine. Father God, I pray that everyone in this room will make that decision right now. It may be the first time to say, God, forgive me based on the blood of Jesus. Declare me righteous. Give me a way of escape from the wrath of God. Give me escape from sin and the coming judgment. Or it may be the hundredth, millionth time. But may our lives be living sacrifices of worship as we daily repent and thank you for the cleansing of Jesus Christ. And may that motivate our hearts to live holy lives, to strive to serve you, to to use our time, our money, our energy, our lives, our work, our friendships, our marriages, our parenting, to use everything to spread your glory to the ends of the earth because you do not condemn me. Lord, give us such hearts. Thank you for being a gracious God. It's in Christ's name I pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.